Well, thank you very much, Kurt. It's uh, truly a, uh, a joy to be with you. We have been praying for you and particularly for uh, the work of Pastor Sudar Shen in, uh, in India. And it was a, a real thrill uh, last night to actually talk to him in person with, uh, with your pastor. And we've just been really enjoying our, our time of fellowship. Um, he showed me around San Diego a little bit yesterday, and uh, we were able to share a little bit of uh, our churches. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of remarkable similarities between our congregations. Uh, we are also in rented facilities. We're also about the same size in a very diverse congregation. So it's a real joy to, uh, to come and, and to discover these things. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to uh, Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk 3. Um, that's the fifth last book in the Old Testament. If you can find Malachi and, and work your way backwards, we can, uh, we can get there together. All right. Got to nail down my notes here. I think they're flying away on me. <laughs> All right. I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter. Our focus this morning is going to be uh, really on uh, verses 3 through to the end. Hear now God's holy inerrant word. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of, the warrior, of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, 
the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, this is the word of the Lord and it endures for all time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this mission psalm of Habakkuk. And we pray, O oh Lord, that this morning, as we consider it together, you would open our eyes and our hearts to this truth, Lord. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would rebuke us, that you'd train us in righteousness, that you might be glorified. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to this text. And Lord, we pray, would you speak by your Holy Spirit into our hearts? Would you help us to put aside all distractions and to engage with your word in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, this morning, um, I think we come to what I think is one of the most beautiful, practical, and still one of those lesser-known passages in the Old Testament. You all know that this is a minor prophet. Now, you know, the difference between a minor and a major prophet is not really because one was greater or, or more renowned, but just that they wrote longer or shorter books. That's the difference between a major and a minor prophet. And we come to this prophet, Habakkuk. And most of us don't know very much about Habakkuk. In fact, even Bible scholars don't. Frankly, we know that he lived around the 7th century BC during the period of the divided kingdom and before the, uh, the, the invasion of the Babylonian army, which is what he's alluding here to. Um, his is one of the shortest books in the Old Testament, but it deals with profound and deep and helpful truths in the Christian experience. Now, since I don't expect that all of you have a, a broad understanding of uh, Habakkuk, I just want to give you a little bit of a background before we dive right into chapter 3 here. Um, Habakkuk is really a series of dialogues between the prophet and God. Um, in chapter 1, we see Habakkuk crying out to God. He's troubled with the sin and the wickedness that he sees all around him in Israel. And he wrongly perceives that God is somehow idle while all of this wickedness is happening and the world is falling apart. And he feels, sometimes like we feel, that his prayers for change and reformation have gone unanswered. And uh, sometimes we can feel like this and we, we see that he, he prays this. There's a real honesty and a visceral nature to his prayer. But later in the same chapter, when God does answer, Habakkuk is perplexed because God does answer, but not in the way that Habakkuk wants. He says he does see, and he is going to come in judgment, not on the nations around Israel, but Israel itself. And Habakkuk really struggles with this because he struggles with the, the moral dimensions of God's response. And God, in, 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 the, in chapter 1, is telling um, Habakkuk, that he's raising up the Babylonians, otherwise known as the Chaldeans. So those two terms are, are interchangeable to conquer Israel and to carry them off into exile and slavery. And Habakkuk struggles to make sense of this. And he asks God why he remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He thinks that Israel should be protected because they are more righteous than the Chaldeans. 
God's response in another dialogue is to direct Habakkuk, Habakkuk to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And he points Habakkuk beyond the immediate problem to focus on God himself. God wants Habakkuk to adopt his way of looking at the overall problems uh, and, and, and the difficulties that arise in a sinful world, rather than relying on Habakkuk's own limited perspective of a specific problem. So as we come here to chapter 3, we see how Habakkuk finally, at the conclusion of this book, begins to live by faith and apply the truth of who God is and what his sovereign purposes are to a situation. And the end result is this, this beautiful psalm, which you can see it's directed at the very end there. I don't read, didn't read the directions, but it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's meant to be sung. This is the lesson that he presents. And it's important for us to, to see this, this, this struggle that has ongoing. Sometimes we struggle in our own circumstances to make sense of the situation. I was reading recently of uh, an English missionary named Alan Gardner in 1851. He went on a mission to South America with a number of other people, this little remote uninhabited island off of the bottom tip of South America. They, They were shipwrecked there. And Alan Gardner and his companions ended up dying off one by one. They had gone out with grand intentions to to spread the gospel, and they ended up shipwrecked and dying. And uh, eventually, Alan Gardner himself died. And the last entry he wrote, as they discovered his journal, quoted Psalm 34, verse 10. Some of you may know this. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, just a second here. Here's a man dying of hunger. But he quotes, they that seek the Lord shall act no good thing. Can you imagine that? The very last thing he writes in his journal was essentially this. I'm overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Don't forget, this is a guy dying of starvation. He's far from home. Everything around him is broken. His body is unable to support him anymore. And he's saying that God is good in that circumstance. Can you even relate to that? Is that your experience? Are you able to declare God's praises even as you face the greatest hardships in your life? Do you know when we like to say, when I like to say that God is good? When do I say it? Well, when things are going well, God is good. It's so easy to say, God is good. The harder thing is when things are not going very well. But Habakkuk here, I think, helps us to see how that journey can be so much richer and broader in relationship to God. Because we have a tendency to declare that God is good 
when our fig trees are blossoming. But Habakkuk declares that God is good when the fig trees should not blossom, when fruit is not on the vine, and everything is not going perfectly. And I think in this, we have a very important lesson to us. This man, both Alan Gardner and Habakkuk before him, found a way to contact, to access the goodness and the love of God apart from their life's circumstances. Everything in his life, in Habakkuk's life here, is falling apart just like Alan Gardner, yet he is able to meditate and indeed to sing praises of the goodness of God. He was overwhelmed with a sense of it. And even as you hear that, you may think, wow, I wish I had that. I wish I had that ability to, no matter what the circumstances, give praise to God, to have something that was surpassingly good that would help me to make sense of the struggle that I feel every day. Because if you're like me or like most Christians, we tend to believe the goodness of God when we have good circumstances. And we tend to doubt the goodness of God in bad circumstances. But the gospel enables us to give glory to God no matter what our circumstances are. But it doesn't mean that this is something that just happens easily. It's something that we see the Christian, as they mature and grow, struggling to grasp and realize. And in the prophet Habakkuk, we realize, we see something of that journey. At the end of this book here that we read, we have him humbly coming before God and worshiping him, accepting God's justice and asking in his judgment not to take away mercy, but that he would remember his mercy, that he would be God as he is called. Now, in this acceptance speech, in this psalm, we need to remember that things are not easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for Habakkuk. We're not expected as Christians to be some sort of Marvel superhero that no matter what comes, we can go and we can take on whatever comes. We see in verse 16, even in this passage, his own struggle comes forth. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk is very afraid, even as he composes this psalm of faith, this psalm rejoicing in God's goodness. And surely, Alan Gardner struggled as his body wasted away. It wasn't some sort of denial. He wasn't some sort of strange fool who didn't realize that he was dying, that he was facing these things. There was a real truth to this encounter. But let me ask you, If you are facing a disaster like Habakkuk, where basically he's being told that his his whole the world as he knows it is going to end and his country is going to be invaded and they're all going to be taken off into exile. How would you encourage someone in those circumstances? Well, 
One of them might be just to accept it, right? Worldly wisdom here might encourage him to stop wasting effort being afraid and just adopt a kind of fatalistic attitude. Whatever happens, happens. You know what? You're not in control. Just take it. Que Sirah, Sirah, whatever will be, will be. Or if you were trying to give Habakkuk wisdom here, you might encourage him to man up, right? Come on, man up, Nancy boy. Be strong. I want to encourage him to be self-controlled and courageous. Stop your crying and your whimpering. Face it like a man. Come on, Habakkuk, where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where's self-control? Or maybe you might even encourage him to forget about it. Best thing that we can do is to just not think about it. Go watch some TV or just get, some, get your mind off of it. Some of you remember, it was a few months ago, might even been last year now, where they had the nuclear drill in Hawaii, except that the residents of Hawaii didn't know that it was a nuclear drill. And they, they thought there was a North Korean nuclear missile headed their way. And people freaked out. I mean, people put their kids in, in, in the storm drains. But this one guy... Uh, what he did is he said, well, it's going to happen. So he went over to his cabinet and get, got a really expensive bottle of scotch and, and drank and waited for the bomb to land. Sometimes that's how people deal with things. But all of those circumstances are not how Habakkuk handled his fear. This psalm of Habakkuk provides us with a totally different alternative. Better than denial, better than false courage, Better than self, mere self-control or, or just ignoring the situation, Habakkuk responds very differently and very helpfully. Because maybe this morning, some of you are facing a situation of great anxiety or fear in your life. Maybe you fear losing your job. Maybe you fear losing your spouse or your friends, your reputation, your career. Fear is a real motivator to many of us. Life may not have gone as you expected it, and now you don't even know how to proceed. I think sometimes when we look at missionaries, we have this sort of disassociation. When when they go and and they put their life and their limb and their family in in jeopardy, it's like, why would you do that? Because we live oftentimes in fear. Well, the psalm of Habakkuk here shows us how to proceed how to remain on mission in the midst of great fear, in the midst of difficulty in our circumstances. It reveals something truly about the nature and character of God. One thing that's not very popular is it shows that God's wrath against sin is real, that he will not tolerate sin and that he will act. And Habakkuk believed that God would act in judgment, and he did. But how do you live in faith? under those circumstances. We're going to see that Habakkuk here finds strength in God's absolute sovereignty in the midst of his utter weakness. We're going to see it in basically two points from this particular passage. First, we're going to see that Habakkuk starts by recalling the mighty acts of God. And then, finally, we'll see that he rejoices in the Lord's strength in the time of his weakness. So he recalls the mighty acts of God, and then he rejoices in his time of weakness. Now, as we said, Habakkuk is in the process here in the book of accepting the reality that God is coming in judgment and processing it. 
And we see that he, he has a real struggle to do this, but he, 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 he's perplexed about God's work, but he, he's developing a process. And if we just take, take one section here, I think it's helpful to, to illustrate it. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 12 to 2 verse 1, he says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have obtained, ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows them up, the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them with a hook. He drags them out with his neck. He gathers them into his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, Habakkuk here is, this is his initial response to God uh, giving his, uh, his, his message that he will bring judgment on Israel. And as we see here, there's actually a process that he goes through. He, he stops to think about the process. He, he responds by stating and restating basic principles about God here in this passage, that he is everlasting and eternal, that he is a God of justice. He's reminding himself of who God is. And then he applies basic principles to his problem. He says, we shall not die there in verse 12. But when that didn't solve it all, Habakkuk brings it and leaves it with God. He says he takes his stand there at the watch, at the watch post. So faced with fear, faced with uncertainty, faced with difficulty, Habakkuk rehearses what he knows. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, if you're a professing Christian this morning, what do you know? How well do you know the word of God? One of the things that the psalm says is that we are to hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is one of the the real practical outworkings of memorizing the scriptures. We're memorizing, remembering what God has done in the past. And that's not just a mechanical thing that you do to get some some candy at children's uh, VBS events. That's actually practically meant to equip you so that when you face difficulty, you have answers there. And and it's really important in a practical way in your life as well. Tim Keller has, I think, a very helpful illustration. Uh, he He says this, consider yourself in a situation like this. Consider that you are a single Christian woman, and you grow up, and you go from home to university, and you meet this really attractive young man. Now, it so happens that this young man is not a Christian, but your emotions get better of you, and you fall in love, and now he's asking you to marry you. What do you do? Well, in that case, emotions won't save you, Right? What do you do? Emotions won't save you. They're, in fact, they're the thing that got you in the, in, the, in the problem in the first place. The way that this guy makes you laugh, the way he understands you and hears you, that's what's drawn you in. You can't trust your emotions. Reason won't save you either. 
Think of a million reasons why you two should stay together. You have that, that inner lawyer, right? We all have this inner lawyer. By the way, we need to fire the inner lawyer, right? Because he finds all kinds of reasons, or she finds all kinds of reasons why we should justify sin. In those cases, emotion and reason will not save you. Only knowledge of God's word and applying and submitting to it alone. And that's where it becomes clear. The scriptures are very clear with respect to unbelievers, right? 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The teaching in the scriptures is clear. And if the person is a Christian, they are called to pray to God, confessing their sin and seeking repentance from God. So what we see here in Habakkuk is not some academic exercise. This is in the trenches Christian living. He's wrestling with something he can't even fathom, that, that, that God is going to destroy his covenant Israel. Why are you allowing this to happen? So he goes back to the basics. He thinks about what he knows about God. And what does he know about God? Well, we see here, he knows a lot. In, the, in, the first, uh, in verses 3 to 7, we see Habakkuk here describing something of God's coming glory. He describes the actual process by which God came in all of his glory in the history of men and the awesome effects that God has had in the past. And we see this beginning in verse 3 here, where he says, <clears throat> he says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Like, Really, Pastor Chris? What do you mean he came from Teman and Mount Perrin? Those names mean very little to me. Right? I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out Southern Californian geography. And today I was asking if Escondido was a suburb of L.A. Um, so I, I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure those things out. And sometimes we're like that when we come to the scriptures. We don't even know where, where this means. But these names might not mean anything to you. But the Israelites, they were markers. They were Ebenezers that reminded them how God had brought them out of the land of Egypt and exile. Teman is generally associated with Edom in the south, where they entered into the promised land. Paran is associated with the desert area, area around Sinai and Egypt. So when he uses these, these place names, he's evoking memories of God's sovereign work in the past. And then in, in verse 4, we see him, him uh, speaking of the glory and the presence of God. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. It's, it's an amazing splendor and majesty that he speaks about this God. He came, and, and God not only came, he came in dazzling glory. A glory that had to be veiled. It reminds you of, of, of 2 Corinthians 3.3, where it talks about how now we, with unveiled faces... Behold, God. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ represented as the light of the world. The light that is holy. 1 Timothy 6 describes God as, as one who dwells in unapproachable uh, light, who, who, who no one has seen or ever can see because he's so holy and powerful and good. And it is in his light that we see light. That's ultimately the essence of the gospel. We need this light. We need the light of the world because we walk in darkness. And when we see God, we see our own sinfulness and our own inability and our own lostness. 
And in seeing our sin and our lostness, we see our need for a Savior. We see our need for God to deliver us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We all need this. And he does. He responds. He is a savior. He delivers in history. And God has shown that he's done this. In verse 5, we see a reference here to his deliverance. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. What does that recall to you? Right? The ten plagues. That's how he, how he delivered Israel out of the clutches of Egypt. In verse 7 there, even these, again, these, these words, if we know our Old Testaments, these places mean something. I saw in the tents of cushion and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Remember Judges 7? How God delivered Israel through a soldier's dream about a dinner roll rolling through the camp and destroying it? And he panics, and they're all, they're all there. And then when Gideon comes through with his men, and they're banging things, they all think that there's this massive army coming. And even though there's only 300 men, and there are over 100,000 men, they run away in fear. God did that. That's what Habakkuk is recalling. He's bringing us back to these things. He knows all these things. He's recalling God's mighty acts in history and his mighty arrival on the scene. God is not just some feature of creation. No, verse 6 says that he measures the whole earth. His are the everlasting ways. This is whom Habakkuk is dialoguing with. This is his power. This is his action in history. And having recalled God's sovereign power and history of salvation and deliverance, he then starts applying it to himself. In this beautiful hymn, as we see in verse, verse 8, he, he dialogues with God. We see that, he, that, that God himself has arrived on the scene. And, and Habakkuk directly addresses him. He says, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? We see here again, he starts mixing in these, these metaphors, the water imagery, which again, invokes that that history of God's salvation where he parted the Red Seas in order to allow the the Israelites to pass through and then crushed the chariots of the Egyptians. But his chariot of salvation, his way of salvation was opening that that, that, that space uh, to allow Israel to go through. And he's the one here at verse 11. uh, He alludes to him demonstrating the sovereignty over the sun and the moon for Joshua in his victory at Gibeah. Look what he says. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So here we have Bacchic facing devastation by an alien army. But what does he do? He depicts greater wrath and power in Yahweh's horses and chariots. No nation on earth was able or has been able to withstand his onslaught. And here Habakkuk begins to live by faith because he expects a salvation to come. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You see, Habakkuk 
having rehearsed and and thought through and recalled the mighty acts of God in the past. Now he starts applying it to the present. He's claiming the promises of God. He's saying, show this to me in our time. I've heard of it. Now let me see it. Let me see that. you imagine praying that as you face your difficulty and your circumstances? Because you are no more or no less a child of God than Habakkuk was. In fact, you have been given greater uh, blessings in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. You've been given him as your high priest. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to pray towards Jerusalem like this mosque next door. Which prays towards Mecca and, and invokes all kinds of incantations. No, you have direct access to the throne room of God. You can come. And access him. You've been given the revelation of God. Because our God is not some unknowable being that is transcendent above all, that has no compassion, like Allah. No, you have a God who is full of compassion. You have a God who condescended to come down, to enter into the muck and the mire of this world, to live a holy and a perfect life, so that he could die a sinless death in order to provide hope and encouragement and strength to each of us. And this is what God does. And brothers and sisters, this is something we need to believe. This is something we need to have faith and trust. And that there's a point where that faith rubber needs to hit the road. Do you believe, parents, as your children get older and start making their choices for better or for worse, do you believe that God is sovereign? And that he will work in these situations. Do you believe that God will sovereignly work all things for your good and for theirs? According to his providence and his wisdom. Do you you believe this as you face the troubles in your own life? As your body breaks down? As you get older? Face retirement? As you face whatever struggles at work? How do you deal with hardship and suffering and failed expectations? What's Habakkuk's Habakkuk's response to this? Does he give up? No. He rejoices in the Lord. Secondly, in times of fear, in verses 17 to 19. The the outcome of this, this meditation on the history of God's mighty acts, the fruit that comes is an ironclad statement of faith in God. Habakkuk here in verse 17 to 19 is not denying reality. He's seeing that God's ways are not his ways, but they are far better. You know, as Isaiah says, your, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. They're higher, right? They're higher. And here we see Habakkuk coming to this, this answer, to this situation. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will Rejoice in the Lord. See, Habakkuk's response to his circumstances is not stoicism. It's not like, buck up your lips and face it like a man. No. The simple, biblical, and counterintuitive response when we face difficulty is to rejoice in the Lord. We put our faith and our trust in him alone. 
This is what the psalm has been building up to here. And this is the great grand conclusion in verses 17 to 19. In verse 18, he repeats the joy. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see this repetition again. It's meant to emphasize, to make the point go deeper. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding this when things, when we haven't experienced the level of suffering and frustration. We have a lady that I minister to in our congregation who can't come out anymore because she has physical challenges. She has multiple diagnoses. It's a very difficult situation. And yet when I call her, I actually end up, I think, more encouraged than she is by my call because she speaks to me of what she spends. She, she can't read anymore. She has difficulty with everything. So she remembers the songs and the hymns that she grew up with. And she sings. She sings all the time in the midst of her suffering. And it's actually a cheerful and, and joyful thing. You, you would think that someone with, with, with the kind of things that she's struggling with, cancer and diabetes and all kinds of things all at once, that it'd be like, wow, this is a, it's a, it's a real challenge. But, but actually, because her faith and her trust is in the Lord and she sees his grace, even despite those things, it's such an encouragement to see. The rejoicing that, 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 that we see in this psalm is evident even in the progression of how uh, Habakkuk addresses the Lord. He starts in verse 3 in the passage by, by addressing him as Elohim, an, an ancient and a, and a poetic name for God. But when the prophet begins to dialogue with him, he uses that wonderful uh, name. When you see it in, in the ESV and in some modern translations, it's like a capital L-O-R-D. That is the, the covenant name for God, Yahweh. He addresses him as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And finally, at, in verse 19, we see he addresses him as Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh my Lord and my master. So we see this progression happening even throughout the psalm as he, as he climaxes here. But what does he mean practically when it means that he takes his joy in the Lord and not in his circumstances? Well, look at verse 19. He makes a very important statement here. He says, God, the Lord, Yahweh Adonai is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. Yesterday, your pastor took me out to Cabrillo National Monument, um, and we stood on the cliff there and, 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 and saw uh, the, the whole of downtown San Diego and uh, Pastor Kurt didn't know this, but I'm afraid of heights. I hate, I hate heights. And he climbed down, nimble as a deer on, on there, and took a picture on, on the edge of the cliff. And I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't fall. Uh, but he's on the heights there. And, and we, we went down and we, we looked around and we went into they had the, the, the post open and they talked about how they were watching for the Japanese ships in World War II. And, um, this, this was a strategic location to be up high. And less so now that we have you know, satellites. Actually, those are the, at the highest point, and they can see everything down. But, but in ancient times, the safest place that you could be was the high ground. That was why Jerusalem was so, uh, so protected, and it took so long. The Jebusites held onto it for so long uh, until David conquered it because it was a city on a hill. It had the strategic advantage. The people who inhabited the high ground could not be successfully attacked. You can't attack going up a mountain. 
can't, it's really hard to attack people going uphill. But the, the real advantage is the people that are up there can see you coming from a mile off, right? That's the whole point about having the, the high point and, and, and the high vantage point. And whoever possessed these in ancient times had the strategic, major strategic advantage. And what I think Habakkuk is saying here is that when suffering comes to you, and brothers and sisters, in this world of sin, it will come to you. When disappointments and failures and hard times come, what should happen, what can happen, is that we can actually be pushed up through these circumstances to the heights. Because there's a certain narrowing of our focus. When things start going wrong, right, a lot of peripheral issues drop away. Right? And, and some of the, 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 the small things in your life drop away. And you, you have this kind of laser-like focus on what actually is important when things are going wrong. I think we've all seen people go through suffering. Right? We, uh, we were speaking earlier and praying for Pastor Chris Beamer and uh, Pastor Kurt was sharing with me last night uh, a hymn that he wrote. I think that he's sung here uh, or had some things. And it was just, it, it, it's amazing to think that in the midst of, of facing a terminal diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, that he's able to compose a hymn of praise and submission to his God. Why isn't he angry at God in this situation? Because that, that's, that, that's something that comes. My father had... Um, a major accident a number of years ago. And he had his care worker come to him and she said, I know you're a pastor. She's like, don't you think, you know what? Didn't you ever want to say to God, why me? Why me? Why have you done me? I'm a faithful pastor. I mean, Toronto's a, a last place. We need churches, all these things. Why am I going through this? Why is our, our church being affected in this way? My father's response to her was, I don't ask why me. I ask why not me? Why not me? Because he understood that he was a sinner and that he is, in that sense, worthy of God's wrath. And the fact that he has been blessed by God to come into a relationship with him will enable him to process everything else through that lens and that filter and change his whole perspective on life. His expectation then in life is not for wealth and prosperity. It's for his treasure in heaven. It's grace and, and, and appreciation for what God has done. See, suffering can do one, one of two things, really, to us, right? We, we've met people who have suffered, and they become bitter, and they become angry. And the, the reality is there's a certain arrogance, even, that can come through suffering. Something can say, oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? You can't do that, and, and you might be right. You might be right, I've never experienced this. It makes you feel so noble and so, so righteous, self-righteous even. But others, as they're affected by the sovereignty of God, as they're affected by the truth of God's relation, have a different response. Instead of setting themselves up and, and, and judging God, they submit to him. They're humbled by their suffering. They head in the trajectory of Alan Gardner, they're able to face anything. Some people get sweeter under persecution. Others get more sour. In other words, suffering will either make you 
a far better or a far worse person than you were before. Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, suffering will either make you fall further than you have ever fallen before and actually destroy you spiritually, emotionally, or it will put you on the heights. And look at what he says there in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He takes him to the heights, the heights of character, the heights of closeness with God to gain perspective on all this world, to gain perspective on the treasures, not the treasures that moth and rust destroy and that thieves break in and steal, but the treasures that are ours in relation to our God. We can extend this further by rejoicing in the final revelation of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Habakkuk's view was limited. He had seen what God had done in the past, but he could only anticipate what God would do in the future. We, however, as we look back, see that central pivotal point in history where God sent Jesus Christ as our great high priest and left us with the words of Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gives us a perspective. Jesus is our perspective. And this is what it means as a Christian. This is what, what it means. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle. It doesn't mean that we won't tremble. We see Habakkuk doing those things. But there is a sense where we can take refuge in the reality that it doesn't matter if you lose your job. It doesn't matter if you lose your bank account or your food or your spouse or your children. You can still rejoice in the Lord if he is your savior. This is a beautiful truth. And it's something that I think is very aptly suited for the mission field. John Piper, uh, when he came to ministry, this was, uh, when, when, he, when he was being married, this is the text that he requested would be his marriage uh, text as he married his wife, Noel. This passage, particularly, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fluid food, the, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. That sounds like a great marriage future, doesn't it? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the wife of my youth. No, ultimately, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He knew the covenant promises of God. He had no idea what heartaches would come to him. He would see children turn away from him, but he and his wife set their course. They sought to set their course according to the scriptures. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. We need to consider what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to live not in fear anymore. We can live with fear but we don't live in fear. All that we have is from God. Pilgrims in his hands. We're going to close by singing a hymn by a man named Horatio Gates Spafford. Um, He was a lawyer in the 19th century and a close friend of the evangelist D.L. Moody. And in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost everything. He lost his business. And two years after the fire... Uh, Horatio 
uh, planned a trip to Europe to go and, and, and do a, an evangelistic campaign with D.L. Moody. And so he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him on a ship. And he prepared and, and closed out some business on his way. And he uh, was not meant to travel with his, with his family. But the, the day that they were due to depart, he had a last-minute uh, business transaction. He was going to try and travel with them, but he had a last-minute business transaction that kept him back. And sadly, uh, the, the ship, if some of you know the story, was lost at sea. And his wife uh, sent a telegraph to him saying, saved alone, meaning she was the only one in the family who survived. And so he continued. He got on that ship, and he, uh, he began to compose this, this hymn that we're about to sing. And, and uh, it, it makes that, that hymn, I think, so poignant that it's descriptive of his own personal grief. That, 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 that phrase, when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. Now, it's notable that in that psalm, in that hymn that we're about to sing, and I just want you to pay attention to it as we do, he doesn't, Spafford didn't, didn't uh, dwell on the, the theme of the life sorrows and trials. But in the third stanza, as we sing it, you'll see that he focuses on the redemptive work of Christ. And in the fourth verse, he anticipates his second and glorious coming. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need when we face the times of trouble. That's the focus that Habakkuk had. He anticipated yet the salvation of God. The trials and troubles of our lives and the difficulties that people face on the mission field are hard and they're heartbreaking. We see misery and trouble and sin all around us. Our society seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. But we can say it is well with our soul. And the only way is if we know the keeper of our soul, if we are trusting in him to provide our comfort and our help. And his words does comfort us. It tells us that there is an answer to our sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know this Jesus Christ, if you don't know this comfort, if you are struggling with your situation, let me just give you the simple word. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Cry out to him. Habakkuk cried out to his God and he reflected, he meditated on the revealed word of God and it brought him the help and the salvation that he needs. And that help and that salvation is still to be had because God is the same yesterday, today, and he will be forever. And his name can even be praised in the midst of our hardest times and our most difficult struggles. May Habakkuk's mission psalm be ours. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we examine these truths, we thank you that you have a word that grapples and and helps us to, to process the world that we see, that you have given us light to our path and, and you have not left us in darkness. So Lord, I pray, would you apply these principles to our hearts? May we find joy and encouragement. May we look to Jesus Christ as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you give us joy, Lord, even as if we have the privilege of singing, it is well with my soul. Lord, we pray, bless us as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.